G'day and welcome to another episode of Birth Property Insider. I'm your host, Jared Mann. And today I've got Dwayne Lung, my colleague, to interview me on my inside story where we've just gone about purchasing property in Mount Lawley. Got lots of takeaways to share with you, including our process, my thinking, and some of the key learnings. There's going to be lots to cover. So we've broken it up into two parts. And in this first part, we're going to look at how I set my strategy and overall plan for the property, how I created a budget and chose the suburbs to look at, uh, what were some of my key criteria for the property, what were the non-negotiables as part of that, and how did I go about my search? Some nuggets in there. And finally, in this first part, we're going to cover off the ones that I missed out on and the key learnings that I walked away with that helped me go into the one we ended up buying. And we'll be covering in part two all the nitty gritties about what one we ended up with and the details. So stay tuned for part two as well next week. Let's go inside for part one now. Welcome to Perth Property Insider, where you will learn how to grow your wealth and improve your life using Perth Property. Our show is brought to you by Investors Edge Real Estate, the highly rated and award-winning property management specialists servicing the whole of Perth. Now, here's your host, Jared Mann. Hey, Dwayne, thanks for joining me today to chat about my inside story on my Mount Lawley purchase and all the takeaways and learnings I've had. Thanks for joining me, mate. Oh, it's a pleasure, mate. It's always great to talk investing with you. So I'm hoping today to take people inside the process around my most recent purchase of a property in Mount Lawley, I guess, cover off my thinking and some of the learnings. And it's not because I know it all, I'm still on the journey too and learning along the way. And you'd know that I go through the same emotions as any buyer does. You, you get to hear about it every day. Um, and I guess more of my motivation around sharing this is because I thought it would, I guess, help people see the inside view and help with their own investing, as well as tie together a lot of the past episodes that where I've spoken about, you know, investing in a hot market and ideal buying criteria and many of the other sort of strategy and mindset episodes that I've covered off and give people, I guess, a more of a real life example to anchor some of those things. And hopefully that'll help with your investing at home as I take you through them. So don't be put off, I guess, by the higher price point because everything we discuss would potentially apply regardless of your budget. And as I um, started out in my earlier investing, I started out in the lower end, lower price points and just recorded a podcast on um, an example of my first property, which was 189000 Wayne, Don't hear a price point and think, oh, this is not relevant to me. It's more the process, the thinking and the learnings that I want to get across to you today. So, Dwayne, hit me with the first question. What is it? Jared, how does this property purchase fit into your overall plan? So, as you know, I've kind of more moved my overall strategy and thinking to towards buying the highest quality of investment property that you can. The words investment grade are thrown around by people like Michael Yardney, Stuart Ames, who I follow. And it's to basically choose something that has a proven history of performance. And that's really shaped my thinking too, as to what I'd buy if I could buy anything. So we want it to, to the suburb to have a proven history of performance. And then we, when we go about choosing the property, we want it to be highly desirable location where I can rent it out and hold it forever. 
and I want this property to not only be desirable now, but universally through good markets and bad and to be resilient for when the market is down and to have had that more consistent higher end capital growth that's occurred in the past over at least 30 years. So that's the how it fits into the plan. I want a high quality investment grade property that has had consistent capital growth and is strongly desirable in any market. So just to um, add to that a little bit, I guess, what happens with the rental yield for this type of property, Jared? I mean, your plan obviously at this point is long-term capital growth, but did that rental yield play any factor in your decision? Well, that's why, you know, no two properties, property criteria is the same for every investor. And while you might listen to some other people's uh, podcasts that just cater to, you know, higher end properties and more blue chip properties, is some people's philosophy. I appreciate that people are at different points in their overall journey. And when you start out, I suggest people buy the best quality of property that they can afford. And some people focus more towards cash flow initially, but I think the better approach is to focus on growing your capital base first. So this is definitely in that camp of growing your capital base. And there's trade-offs whereby the rental yield that I'm expecting is more two to two and a half percent in favor of that higher six to eight percent capital growth rate. Whereas if we go to the outer areas, we might get five to seven percent rental yield and four to five percent capital growth. So if you can afford the ongoing going holding costs because it will be either neutral or slightly negatively geared. We'll go into the specifics of this property in a minute. If you can afford that ongoing holding cost and factor in interest rates that are coming up, and I'm thinking in my head, possibly up to 2% is the longer term projection, then my preference is to have that capital growth compounding in the background and me not paying tax on that compounding of the asset because it's not being sold. Whereas if you've got more of the income now, when I don't want the extra income now, I'm paying tax on that extra income. And and as an overall return, I'm paying more tax on the income component now if it was a positive cash flow property. So that's my thinking and why I'm leaning heavy, if you will, on the scale of positive cash flow down here, high capital growth up here. I'm down the high capital growth end. So that is a good context to to give people. Dwayne, good question. Mm, Awesome. Awesome. And um, with this particular property, how did you go about setting your budget and uh, choosing the particular suburbs to look at? So I think regardless of whether you, you have a low budget or a high budget or whether you're focusing on cash flow or growth, I still think you should be choosing suburbs based on their rates of growth over the last 30 years. So I looked at the average annual growth rates over that time. I had a big research study compiled by Rewa that I use in providing suburb recommendations to anyone that purchases a buyer's pack with us. So that's a very minimal cost that people can get our suburb recommendations. So I use that same data to choose the suburbs that I'm going to focus on. And when you look at what those suburbs are, and if, if budget's not a constraint for you, I was more choosing the Western and inner suburbs because uh, that's where the highest growth rates have been. And it's not necessarily the highest priced suburbs in Perth. So Delkeith and Peppermint Growth, for instance, have actually only had around 5% average annual growth rate, whereas suburbs like Mount Hawthorne, Wembley, Floriot, South Perth, Como, and Mount Lawley, all of these have had higher growth rates at the more 6 to 8% end or more around the 6 to 7%. So that's where I set my focus on the inner and western suburbs because of this growth being the main key. And I started with a budget of 
to in mind, and as you always do when you start getting out there and realizing what, <laughs> you, can, what you can get for it, I ended up increasing that to 1.6 as my budget. And I had to go and increase my pre-approval in line with that so that I could have a quicker and approval of once I found the property. So that sort of process probably took a couple of months to get really clear on what I was prepared to spend in that budget and see what I could get for it. Yeah, interesting. I Just for all the listeners out there, I, every day I'd come to work, Jared would tell me about the properties he saw on the weekend and all of these amazing properties, but they were just outside his budget and it kept creeping uh, week on week. And suddenly we got to 1.6 billion. And uh, for me, quite funny to see the pricing move up like that because it's similar to myself looking for my properties you know it's the same thing you start at a price point and it moves up so i'm glad to see jared <laughs> jared part took the same kind of we got there strategy the <laughs> yeah excellent so jared now that you've actually secured a suburb you've got a budget what were some of those key criteria that you were looking at and what were those non-negotiable criteria that the property must have yeah good question so i wanted the specific property that i would buy to have above 6% in average annual growth rate. And you work that out by going back and looking at what the past sales have been and grab the, the oldest sale, then calculate it out. And that is the only way to be ultra specific on what this property's done in the past. And a suburb can do one thing, but you care more about the specific property has done. It's no guarantee of future growth, but that for me is like the most important thing. If it's been proven in the past, there's more chance of it happening in the future. And then when I start dropping down to some of the more feely things, not just numbers, I wanted a quiet tree-lined street. I'm obsessed about tree-lined streets. Um, you sure are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, it's definitely obsession. But, you know, you just know that feel when you drive down it and you want it to be really close to amenities and have other attractive properties around it. When markets are down and we're in a softer market, you're always going to get people still wanting to pay a premium for a great location over the ones that people trade off for now when the market's hot. So that is definitely big, big, big one for me. And it's what does the heavy lifting in my mind and you know, Michael Yardney equates 80% of a property's performance to its location. And, and you just can't trade that off, in my opinion. So that applies whether you look in, in any given suburb, there's going to be great locations and, you know, not as great ones. So Mount Lawley, where we ended up, was no different. Oh, Other ones I've got question here. for you there, Jared. Oh, yes. Sorry, go. just to interrupt there. What do you think with regard to location and uh, the proximity to housing owned by the State Housing Commission? Does that play a factor in some of these non-negotiable things that you mentioned in relation to location? Yeah, so when people get their the buyer's pack, I actually have my full list of all my ideal buying criteria, which is really helpful for people to overlay over the top and to keep things non-emotional for me. I also overlay my same criteria and force myself to check the things. Like I don't want to necessarily discriminate against Homes West and there's many people that look after their houses and keep them well, but it's more just the possible perception that other buyers could have when you come to sell your house, not necessarily to say that there's anything wrong with the current occupants and that they're not house proud and great people. So I just prefer to stay away from them being in the direct vicinity. And that's something that I always check as well. Main ones for me is I wanted a character home with unique elements such that when it ages, it only becomes more sought after over time. So picture the, you know, lead 
lighting and the high ceilings and the polished boards. Like people get pretty goo goo gaga over this stuff, both tenants and homeowners. And it's not like in 30 years, that's not going to be more sought after. A newer property now, in 30 years, it's going to be a dated property and you can do things to make sure it ages well by the fittings and stuff you choose. But in 30 years, a character home is going to be just as sought after, if not more, in my opinion. So that's why I'm very in favor of that type of property. Does that make sense? 100%. Other ones, you've, I did a whole episode on quality school zones and you'll find pretty much that when you get a high budget, the school zone takes care of itself. But sometimes within a suburb, there can be different catchments that the schools have. So you definitely need to check which catchment a specific property falls in and sometimes you can be surprised. So that is a really important underlying driver that can underpin desirability for an area and have all those homeowners wanting to move in continuously to send their kids there. So other factors that were non-negotiable was that I wanted the potential to either extend the house, so have enough room to do an extension or convert the house from a three by one into a four by two. So that's more just the potential to add value. And I wanted the potential to be able to develop. I wasn't hard and fast on one or the other, but I wanted that potential and whether or not we ever do it, it's just a nice to have. And it also adds an appeal factor that, you know, other home buyers can look at it and think, gee, we can turn this into a four by two. Whereas if they look at it, it's too, the block's too small or it's not, you know, it's too far set back on the block, then it's not as easy and, and won't have that desire. And if investors look at it and think, oh, I can develop it and it's got a higher coding, then that can be a big positive to bring them into the mix as a potential buyer too. I prefer not to have heritage protection um, over the property because it's really hard to extend and develop. (laughs) And I got pretty keen on one or two properties and then found out, oh, geez, a lot of Inglewood and uh, Mount Norley is covered by heritage protection. And I looked at the requirements to do anything and God, it's restrictive. So not impossible, but it was something that I preferred not to have as part of the overlay. So that's you can find that on the council website or by finding the town planner and asking them. Final one was that I wanted the house to be rentable and not need any more than a minor cosmetic improvements. And I wasn't up for doing a massive renovation. I don't have the time. And uh, I wanted to be able to attract decent tenants and the area does a lot of the heavy lifting when you're in a good area. So you're going to have different, better tenants just by association and wanting to be in there for the schools and other things and amenities. But then, you know, you need the house to be rentable enough so that I don't want to be dropping lots of cash and time getting it up there. Does that make sense? Sure does. Absolutely. So I guess from this point, you've got your key criteria the ones that are non-negotiable. You've chosen your suburb. You've got a budget in place. And we've spoken about your plan. So I guess this is where we start our search, isn't it, Jared? I mean, the search was underway. We (laughs) we finally kicked it off in late October, early November. And um, I reached out to all the main selling agents in the various areas. And I think it's really good to keep a contact log spreadsheet and diarize to do it every two months, I think. Uh, maximum so that you can stay top of mind with people. And I like to just see who's got the most listings or who's had the most sold, give give them a call, have a chat, tell them what your criteria is, and then email them afterwards uh, through one of their listings usually um, so that they have it on record and can hopefully let you know before other stuff comes up. And I registered 
email alerts for approximately eight suburbs. So I also choose the option for get told straight away. You can choose like weekly, daily summaries or usually straight away. So I, I ended up just choosing the daily summary, I think. That was enough. <laughs> I was getting too many emails. Um, <laughs> but surprisingly, it doesn't take that long to even check what's coming online for eight suburbs. And I'd left the criteria to be really open because um, – in this market, there's not that much stuff coming on and it kind of helps to see, oh, what four by twos are selling are coming on market for. And, and even though I'm focusing on finding a two by one or a three by one, it was good to see everything that was coming on and, you know, get a feel for the market that way. The third thing I did, which I hadn't thought about previously, was that I engaged a buyer's agent who does a lot of off-market sales. And that was one of my key questions to ask buyer's agents I know in Perth that we work with. And I ended up choosing one of them that had done a lot of off-market and specialized mainly in doing that. And I made it the engagement agreement to only cover off-market properties that I would pay them for. So I did everything on market and and if agents brought properties direct to me, then I didn't have to pay the buyer's agent. But if they brought me something that wasn't on market that I wasn't hadn't already been aware of, then I'd pay them their buyer's agent fee. So that worked really well for me. And I'm not sure if they yeah, would I think do that's it. That's a great idea. Yeah, it was good. It's a really great idea, you know. Yeah. So it allows you to tap into um, properties that you otherwise wouldn't be able to. You can still do the research yourself if you're that way inclined. I think it's a really great idea. Yeah. I mean, I just saw it as a if I could get into the market three months earlier or six months earlier and they gave me more properties to look at, then it's worth me paying that 2% because the market might go up 5% or 10% in the meantime, <laughs> as it's looking like. Yeah, well, that's it, isn't it? I know that um, you've told me a fair few stories of some of the ones that you missed out on during the time of your search as well. A couple you were a bit upset about. So maybe if you could (laughs) just give us some of the ones uh, that meant the most to you or the ones that you felt like you missed out um, on that were the ones that you really wanted Um, and any of those learnings that you had from those particular um, dealings. Well, there was two that I went pretty hard for and – the one of them was in South Perth and the other one was in Floriot. So the South Perth one, we walked away because offers went to a crazy level, 200K over any recent sale and any other agent feedback that I'd gotten. So that was just insane. It was kind of unlucky as well because um, the agent had eight offers in and was having to wait to meet with the executor on the Thursday and I was ready to come in over the top of the other offers and I thought that we would have been able to make put forward the highest price and I'd gotten a bit of guidance as to where I needed to be. But because he had to wait four or five days, we had two other people come out of the woodwork and they just came in and blew it away because the house was in the one of the best streets in South Perth. The end person just wanted to demo it and build an amazing two-story house. So that one stuck with me because uh, timing was so key there that if I could have gotten an answer on the Saturday, we would have probably been our property. But you can't uh, help that if people get crazy. When you're competing against home buyers that are crazy and have missed out on a few properties, um, it also made me think, you know, I've just got to check my emotions and not get too caught up in trying to beat people. <laughs> <laughs> As I do. That competitive Jared coming out again. <laughs> yeah, it was. And the second one, we were probably uh, we're probably even more uh, unlucky on the Floriat one because we found out afterwards that we actually had the highest price offered and they went with the other offer because it was a cash offer and not subject to finance. So that was particularly annoying. 
when you've put forward the strongest, but cash was king. So mm. my biggest takeaway from that one, yeah, you remember hearing about that probably. <laughs> I certainly do. <laughs> Someone wasn't very happy around the office that day. Yeah, had a, had a rough start to the week that week. But I, I ended up speaking to my financial advisor, Stuart, and finance broker Nick and made the decision that, I felt comfortable. To, I even also did a post on our Perth Property Investment Group, so it was good to get some of your guys uh, and girls' thoughts on making a cash offer. And I decided that because I had pre-approval, the risk was worth taking, and that's such a personal decision. I'm definitely not telling you what to do there. <laughs> but um, having the pre-approval at least limits your risk because if you end up making it a cash offer and you're not obviously subject to finance. If you don't get your finance and you can't proceed, you forfeit your deposit and you can potentially be up for any difference in selling price if they don't sell it for the same again. So it can be pretty worrisome. Um, And I'll go into that in a minute. (laughs) So um, I also found the biggest takeaway from those other two properties was I started, I can't recall if I've done it as intensely in the past when I bought properties, but I found that speaking to two to three local agents, the same ones that I might've been chatting to, you know, when I was telling them my criteria previously. So you build up a bit of rapport when you've had your first combo and they get to know you, call them back to ask if they've got anything else coming up too. And then I got their input on and asked them, you know, what do you, what do they think this property might be worth? And because they had properties under offer, when you're looking at sold sales data, that's two to three months old, but they've sold a lot of other properties since. So they can tell you their straight up opinion, they're always looking in the market and had seen the property. And if they hadn't, they just brought it up and started looking into it when I was talking to them, but pretty much all of them had already seen it. And when the market's moving so fast, you need that cold face opinion on price. And that just gave me so much more confidence to be able to offer what I needed to, because if I was basing it on sold data, in each case, I would have been just way off the mark and the market had already moved on. So that was probably a huge takeaway from those two as well. Mm, that's a really good lesson, actually. And I think a lot of our, our clients can take that on board because like you said, the data we all look at through different channels like RP data, by the time we get there, it's one or two months old and the rapid movement in the market, well, you know, that could be a couple of hundred thousand dollars in some instances, you know. So this I think it's a very good yeah. lesson there. Mm, absolutely. Well, thanks for joining me, Dwayne, for part one Next time, things are going to get really interesting where we go into the specifics of the property and why it appealed to me, uh, what were some of the due diligence that we completed to ensure that it all stacked up, lots of learnings in that, and how do we work out how much to offer? Burning question I get all the time from many buyers. I'm also going to take you through the things that I had to organize once our offer was accepted, so you make sure you don't miss anything. And then we, I reflect back on what were some of the hardest things and key takeaways for the whole process. So make sure you come back for part two next week. If you've enjoyed this episode, go along and give us a review at iTunes or Spotify and uh, share it with your friends. Catch you on the next one. Mm-hmm.